Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well friends, I do greet you all in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It is good to see each and every one of you this morning as we gather together to praise and glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. We now come to the high point in our worship service. We didn't just worship and now we do something else. We continue to worship now in the reading and in the teaching of God's word. And this isn't just something that I do. This is something that we do together. I might be doing the speaking, but as you engage intentionally in God's word, our desire together is that the Holy Spirit of God would renew our minds and stir our hearts and transform our lives that he might be glorified in this place. Amen? Amen. And so this is a spiritual activity. And so it's right that now we bow our heads and come before God and ask him to do what God alone can do. And that's transform and edify and build up his people and save the lost. Let's pray to Almighty God. Father God in heaven, It is right that we come before your glorious throne for all things. But in particular this morning, Lord God, we come before your throne for this great thing. Our desire is to see men saved. Our desire is to see your church built up. Lord God, you alone can do these things. And so we, your people, ask, not as beggars, But as children, Father God in heaven, would you be glorified in this place today? This we pray in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, the book of Acts. We're in a a multi-part series through the book of Acts. It has taken us a number of weeks. We're currently in the third week of a series. We're looking at the book of Acts, and in particular, we're looking at how God grows his church, how God grows his church. We started in Acts chapter 2 and looked at the day of Pentecost, how God added 3,000 to their number, and this morning, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, in the New Testament, after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. And if you in Genesis, you've got a little more page turning to go. But I'm hearing that most of the rustling has stopped. I want to read to you Acts chapter 17, beginning at the 16th verse, reading to the end of the chapter. Would you hear the word of our Lord? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day 
with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So... Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him We live and move and have our being. And even some of your own prophets, poets, sorry, have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arabagite, and a woman named uh, uh, Damaris, and others with them just so far in the reading of God's word. Amen. 
This morning, I would like us to start off by thinking about I have no sermon notes. That is terrible. <laughs> God's word is faithful and true, and so we'll do it without sermon notes today. This morning, I'd like us to start off by thinking about religions. I'd like us to start off thinking about religions. In particular, I'd like us to think about the second largest religion of the world. Now, that would be Islam. Islam accounts for about 23% of the world's population. That's billions of people, maybe 1.5 billion people. And yet when you think about Islam, Islam is really located between two parallels, uh, the, the 1040 window, uh, an area uh, located in, from Asia through to North Africa, including some of the Middle East. Whilst it is the second largest religion of the world, in reality it is somewhat of a localized religion. It might interest you to know that the third largest religion in the world is Hinduism. Hinduism accounts for 15% of the world's population. Again, we are talking about billions of people. And yet Hinduism is found, 97% of Hindus are found in just four countries. Again, it might interest you to know that the fourth largest religion in the world, which is Buddhism, accounts for about 5% of the world's population, is made up of just four countries. The rest of the countries uh, that have Buddhists in it account for a very small fraction of people that are Buddhists. Now I want you to think about Christianity. Unlike the other three religions, Christianity makes up for a, a very large percentage of the world's population, uh, somewhere closer to 30%. As you consider the numbers who profess to be Christians, one would ask oneself, where do they live? Do Christians which began Christianity on the day of Pentecost, mainly reside in Jerusalem or in the Middle East. Or maybe as we've been looking through the book of Acts, as Paul has gone on his missionary journeys, does Christianity mainly span from the Middle East through to Europe, Macedonia, that kind of area? And the answer would be no. Maybe you've come into contact with some American missionaries. And you think, okay, well, Christianity moved from the Middle East and from Macedonia, Europe, and went across the shores and is principally in that North American region. And the answer would be no. As you think about Christianity, Christianity is spread with almost equal weight across the South Americas, the North Americas, Europe, Asia, and of course, in Africa, where Christianity is growing faster than it's growing anywhere else in the world. Christianity isn't a localized religion made up of a specific people group who speak a common language or have a common identity. Christianity has moved and spread into every area in the world. 
And so we have to ask ourselves why. Why has Christianity been able to move and spread like that? And we might think a little bit about culture. When we think about culture, culture is those, those properties that make us as a people group. People groups have culture. We might think of Western culture. We might think of African culture. If we think of Western culture, uh, maybe we think of things like Hollywood and Levi's and uh, uh, we think of individualism and we think of capitalism. When we think of African culture, we might think of, instead of individualism, Ubuntu. And we might think of the amazing, vibrant, printed, colored dresses and gear that we wear on a Sunday or to any appropriate gathering. The reality is that culture forms a large part of who we are. As we think of most of the religions of the world, what religions do is they come and as the religion is propagated in an area, it either defeats culture or brings culture into that group of people. And so people identify with new languages and they identify with new dress codes, etc. This morning, as we look at God's word, What we're going to discover as Paul goes into a new culture, as he goes into a new area, we're going to discover that the church grows as we engage with culture. Not as we attack culture, not as we ignore culture, not as we defeat culture or appropriate culture ourselves, but Christianity grows as culture is transformed and elevated and celebrated to God's praise and to his glory. Take a look in your Bibles with me, won't you, at verse 16. It reads, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Paul goes sightseeing. What's happened in verse 15 is he has left Berea. That's where we were last week. You'll remember that the Bereans listened to Paul. They tested what he had to say against Scripture. But eventually, opposition came against Paul. Paul needed to leave Berea. And so in verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And he has, after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Paul is now by himself. One would imagine Paul at the port of Athens. Athens as a city is at this time in history set about uh, about 15 kilometers inland uh, from the sea, from the Aegean Sea. And Paul arrives at the port and he he needs to make himself to the city. The, The Athenians were really clever. Uh, One of the ways that they protected their their port is they, they built a wall. Uh, 15 meters high around their port and around the road that led from the port to the city. And so as Paul goes from the port and he heads to the city, he is walking on this road with these very high walls. And on the walls, as he is sightseeing, he's seeing the kinds of things that people go to Athens today to see. That would be the statues 
The statues to foreign gods. Gods like Athena. Gods like Hermes. Gods like Zeus. Gods like the god of the underworld. He's looking at all of these gods. And as he's walking towards the city, this is what he's seeing. This is what he's identifying. And Paul is sightseeing. As he gets to the city, the city is filled with temples and statues and inscriptions to God under every nook and crevice. In fact, as I prepared this week to preach, I I read some of the ancients, some of ancient uh, historians and philosophers, and they said there were up to 30,000 statues to divine gods in the city of Athens. In fact, it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man in Athens. Gods everywhere. And as he goes about sightseeing in Athens, He's wows at the beauty of the architecture and the things that he's seeing around him turn into woes. We read about that at the end of verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him. That word provoked there is in the imperfect tense. It means that this provocation started and it just didn't stop. Paul was provoked as he saw that the city was full of idols. It means it was awash with idols. Everywhere you looked, you saw idols. And Paul was reminded that this city of Athens was heading to hell. Religious in every way. Temples and statues and gods, wherever you looked, and yet heading to hell because none of these gods could save. And so Paul does something. He he heads to the local synagogue. We read about that in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. Paul responds to this provocation of spirit. And he does it by preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul does what he always does. He goes and he finds the local synagogue. You didn't have to have a lot of Jews in a city in order to start a synagogue. Ten males would do. And so in most of the Roman cities, there was a synagogue. Paul heads to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, he does what he has been doing all the way through the book of Acts since his story entered into it. We read in verse 2 that when Paul went into a synagogue, as was his custom on On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. 
Paul would have opened up the scrolls of the Old Testament. He would have opened up the Old Testament law, uh, Genesis, uh, through uh, Exodus, uh, through to Deuteronomy, and, and demonstrated how Moses pointed forward to the promised Savior that was to come. He would have opened up the books of history, uh, the times of judges, and demonstrated that there needed to be a better judge for Israel. He would have spoken about King Saul and King David and spoken of the promised king that was to come. He would have opened up the books of of prophets. And as he went through Isaiah, he would have pointed to this great man that was to come who would bear the sins of all men, that God would one day dwell with his people again. And he would have said, this is Jesus the Christ that died for your sins and rose from the grave. And you, all of you, in the synagogue, Jew and God-fearers alike, must repent and put your faith and your trust in him. And when he was thrown out of the synagogue, or when the Sabbath ended and he could no longer preach in the synagogue, Paul would have gone to the Agora, to the marketplace, And in the Agora, he would have set up like a a soapbox or something and, and, and stood on it and proclaim to anyone who would hear that Jesus is the Christ, the Christ of the Jews, the Christ of the Athenians, the Christ of you and me. Well, as he's proclaiming, the philosophers of Athens were listening. At this stage in history, Athens is actually on the decline. 400 years previous, uh, around 450 BC or thereabouts, um, Athens had been established as a mighty, mighty city. Uh, But now it is on the dip, it's on the wane, it's losing its influence, particularly its political influence. The political influence of the area is shifting down to Corinth. But what remains is that Athens is a seat of learning. It is a university city. All the greatest philosophers, both in history and at the present, gathered at Athens. And when I say greatest philosophers, I'm talking about the truly great philosophers of the Western tradition, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. All of them had their start in Athens. Amongst these philosophers, we're introduced to two branches. The one branch is called the Epicureans and the other, the Stoics. Uh, We have an English word, uh, Stoic. It it means kind of to have a, a certain stiffness about you, a moral correctness about you. And really, that is the Stoic belief. They, they believed in a type of moralism. The Epicureans were kind of more like ancient hippies. They, they kind of uh, believed that you needed to pursue love and joy and pleasure in this life. Well, these two philosophical thoughts would have had their philosophical teachers, and those philosophical teachers would have been in the Agora and would have heard Paul preaching the gospel message. And as they heard this, they recognized that this was something different. Oh, they start off by deriding him. Uh, They call him, and it's a a kind of um, odd phrase, a a babbler. Um, Really, it's a a bird picker. It's somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing, fleeting ideas that will flutter away. Uh, But in reality, what they do is they ask Paul to come and address them because they want something new. They want new teaching. This isn't very different to us today, I guess. 
Um, if something's happening in the world, maybe a war starts, we turn on CNN or, or Fox and we leave it running because we're interested. We're interested in the news. We're, we're interested in new information. We, we kind of binge watching it until so, we've had our full. And the Athenians are described in verse 21 as being of little difference to us today. Well, now, Paul is standing on Mars Hill. That's what the Romans would call this place. It's a, it's a rocky outcrop of bare marble, bare exposed marble. Uh, from it, you can see the great temple uh, dedicated uh, to Athena. Uh, from it, you can see the whole of the city. Uh, Paul is standing there, and he has an audience, and one wonders what he will speak to this cultural elite, to this intellectual elite, to this philosophical elite, how will he speak to this culture? Will he embrace the culture? Will he give in to the culture? Will he fight like a lion against the culture? Or will, as we see, Paul do something completely different as he engages with the culture? Verse 22, so Paul Standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's the opening of his speech. It's a little bit of a naughty opening of the speech. If you've got a King James Bible, it will say that in every way you are very superstitious. The word which is used here could be translated devout. Or it could be translated superstitious. Either one will do. It seems to be most likely that it is correctly translated in our ESV as religious. He is giving them a compliment, but it's a compliment with a slight. Because they know he's calling them the religious, which they truly are, with their 30,000 gods in Athens. But he's also saying, you've got 30,000 gods, you superstitious bunch. And so he opens up the conversation by saying, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Friends, they had 30,000 gods which they worshipped and venerated in Athens, and yet they still thought that maybe they had missed one. So they had a, a statue to an unknown God. It is said that 500 years previous, there had been a terrible plague in Athens. Uh, the, the city was hard-pressed, and so uh, the, the clerics, the religious people came out and they, they gathered um, a flock of sheep. Because they were used to blood sacrifices to gods. And what they did was they shooed the sheep away. And as the sheep went, wherever they lay down, if it was next to a temple or next to an inscription or next to a statue, they would then slaughter the sheep as a blood sacrifice to that God. But when the sheep lay down in a place where there wasn't a temple, there wasn't a statue or there wasn't an inscription, there they erected a temple or they erected a statue or they erected an inscription to an unknown God because their desire was to appease whatever gods might be out there so that they could get rid of their plague. And so dotted throughout the city, there were these inscriptions to the unknown God. 
Well, Paul is here introduced to culture. And the question is, how will he either, like a lion, fight against it, like an ostrich, stick his head in the ground and ignore it, like a chameleon, embrace it and join it in some way, or transform it? And that's what he chooses to do. Look how Paul uses the culture, engages with it in a meaningful way with the intention of transforming it. We see this in the second half of verse 23. What therefore you worship as unknown, I will proclaim to you. Paul wants them to know about God. And so he uses this as a hook. He uses this as a platform to begin to describe to them who God is. And he says four things about God that I want you to see in this text. Number one, God is creator. We see that in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. God is creator. He starts at the beginning of the story. We could say he starts actually where Genesis starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He recognizes that if these people are to hear about God, they need to know that God alone The only God is the creator of all things. Not a mix of 30,000 little mini-gods, but the one great almighty Elohim, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so God couldn't possibly be an idol. God is not made by human hands. God made everything. Number two, as he describes God to them. He describes God as the sustainer of all things. We read about that from verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he had need of anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. We read in Scripture that indeed Jesus Christ created all things and sustains them by the power of his word. Our God ensures that those Athenians, every single breath would come. Just like he ensures that every single breath that you will take from the moment you are born to the moment that you expire will come. God alone sustains all things. And not just breath. He sustains everything. Every molecule and atom in our universe is sustained by a God who is all-powerful. How could the Athenians worship an idol when almighty God, the one God, doesn't need to be served by them but ultimately gives them all that they need for life and for breath? Number three, the third thing that he says is that our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. We read in verse 26, and he he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they might seek 
God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet he is not far from each of us. As Paul is presenting to them, as he starts off by describing this this God that they do not know, this God who would be known, he describes him as creator and he describes him as sustainer and he describes him as sovereign. Sovereign over nations. Sovereign over our nation. Sovereign over individual people groups, even that are here this morning. God is sovereign over everything. And he also describes God as bringing all these things out through one man, that one man being Adam. From one man come all men, one blood, to God's praise and to his glory. He is sovereign. The fourth thing that he wants us to know about God, that Paul wants the people in Athens to know about God is that he is creator, he is sustainer, he is sovereign, and our God is alive. It says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own prophets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being God's offspring, we we ought not to think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Friends, God is living. It is a ridiculous concept to make a God out of precious metals, yourself fashion him with your own hands, out of silver or gold, or even fashion him with a hammer and a chisel and make him out of stone and then bow down and worship what your own hands have made. No, Paul stands before all of them and he says, your statues might be beautiful, but they are dead. Friends, even as he engages with the Athenians, he reminds them that God is creator, the one God. God is sustainer, the one God. God is sovereign, the one God. And that one God is alive. As he opens up and makes that plain to them, he now delivers the gospel message to them. We read that in verse 30 and following. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He introduces them to Jesus Christ. But he doesn't do it by introducing them to Jesus Christ meek and mild, born in Bethlehem. He doesn't do it by introducing them to Jesus Christ, the the amazing teacher of incredible sayings. He doesn't do it by introducing them to Jesus Christ, uh, the, 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 the fullness of love of God in human flesh. He introduces them first to Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. And he says, friends, times of ignorance has passed. Now, all men everywhere are commanded to repent. 
you ask yourself the question, does God have the right to command me to repent? And the answer is yes. He who created you can tell you what to do. He who sustains you, even today, can tell you, command you what to do. He who is sovereign over worlds and planets and the expanse of galaxies and an infinite universe. He who understands how the molecules fit together, where the wind comes from, He who knows every second of every hour that will ever come to pass, he who is sovereign can command you what to do. The living God can command. And he commands you. Commands you to what? To repent. To repent, Athenians, of your 30,000 deities that can't do anything Repent from following them and turn yourself to the one God that can do anything, everything. Repent, Athenians, of, of, your, of your lifestyle, Epicureans, of your flagrant lifestyle, Stoics, of your self-moralistic lifestyle. Repent of putting your faith and your trust in yourself and turn and put your faith and your trust in the only one who was ever righteous, Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. He who died for your sins as a perfect sacrifice. He who God demonstrates is that sacrifice by raising him to life. It is him in whom salvation is found. Turn, repent, cast yourself upon him, believe in him, profess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will live. The God of life will give you life and that life in abundance. Well, we read in the text what happened. In verse 32, it says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear of you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. What you have here is two groups of people that are in exactly the same boat. One group is mocking. They're saying, that is rubbish. That's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. Besides which, I like living my life the way I'm presently living it. Thank you very much, Paul. And they mock him and they send him off. The other group isn't any different at all. They say, what you're saying is interesting. Um, In actual fact, it is something new. And if you've got more new stuff to say, we'd love to hear about it next week. But they're not signing on on the dotted line. But you know what? As we read last week, those who are appointed to eternal life believed. And we read in the last verse, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the, uh, uh, the Arapagite. This would have been a person who was known to live there, a person who had been there their whole life, um, a Praetorian, a Johannab. 
Bethan, <laughs> whatever it might be, a person who's known to be in the area, a person who has listened to the Stoics all their life, a person who had listened to the Epicureans all their life, a person who knew of Plato and who knew of Socrates and who knew of Aristotle, a person who knew that all of that was meaningless and that life was passing them by and that they needed life, a person who believed upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved. Because Jesus can save people in Athens, in Europe, and Jesus can save people in Africa today, and Jesus can save you. Friends, the, the call to the Athenians is no different to the call to you this morning. Jesus came into this world and died for your sins because you couldn't stand in them before a holy God. He rose from the grave because God accepted the payment. Triumphant over Satan in this world, uh, the, the devil and of sin. And the call on your life is to repent, to turn from your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. I pray you do. For the rest of us, what do we take from this text? Well, we take something about culture. You see, as Paul went to Athens, he didn't go as a lion, wanting to bite the head of everyone that came in his path, roaring, uh, spitting venom, defeating the culture in front of him. We learn something about the way that Christianity grows. It's not like an ostrich, where as it comes into contact with culture, buries its head in the sand and hopes that it goes away, or separates itself from culture and refuses to engage with culture at all. And Christianity isn't like a chameleon. You know, the chameleon goes onto the branch and then looks the same color as the tree, or goes onto, I don't know, a green chair and takes on that color. It embraces everything around it. Christianity isn't like a chameleon. We don't try and look like the world around us needlessly, embracing and syncretizing the world's sin into the church. Now, Christianity is a little bit like, this metaphor changes now, a, a, a peacock, brilliant, beautiful, splendorous. The reality is Christianity is intended to be made up of every tribe and tongue and nation. All cultures redeemed celebrated, glorified before the throne of God as God brings in people who are English and people who are Zulu, people who are black and people who are right and white and people who are every color in between, people who are from one culture and people who are from an, another culture and makes it glorious and splendorous as people stand before his glorious throne and praise him forever and ever. That's how Christianity grows. Not as we ignore culture, not as we kill culture, not as we ignore culture, but as we transform culture and see God transforming culture as we engage culture to his praise and to his glory. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God in heaven, I do thank you for your word. Indeed, Lord God, it is faithful and true. 
Upon it, we can build our lives and our testimonies. It's, it's good for matters of doctrine and it's good for matters of life. Even this morning, Lord God, I do pray that you would take, our word, uh, take your word and that is, which is true, you would entrust to our hearts that which is false. Lord God, uh, you would dispel from us that we would be guided into truth and guarded from error for your own name's sake. I do pray, Lord, for those who are groping for God, hoping to find him, that they will find God in and through the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, that you might receive much praise and glory from a people who are saved to your glorious name. These things we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.